Welcome to the Mujeron Podcast, a place for the modern Latina who is ready to get out of her own way and build the life she wants. I'm Sonia Alejandra, your host and the founder of Mujeron Movement, y juntas we'll explore the topics of self-development, entrepreneurship, community, and everything in between that empowers us on our journey to becoming the Mujeron of our dreams. Vamos a lograrlo juntas. Hola, amigas. Welcome back to another episode of the Mujeron podcast. In this episode, we are actually going to listen to a recording of our interview with speaker and media personality and one of my really good friends, Brenda Smith Lesama. She actually was interviewed for our Amplifica series where we were supporting black creators and we discussed understanding colorism in the Latinx community. She shares her experience as an Afro-Latina in Mexico, and I really wanted to share this interview with you guys because I think it's extremely important we continue to have these conversations. It also was such an eye-opener for me and all of those in attendance. So thank you again for tuning in, and here it is. And I wanted to give Brenda the introduction she deserves. So Brenda has a diverse of a career as she does an identity and both are equally in the spotlight. In her latest television appearance, the Uni Univision Univision, television of Nuestra Belleza Latina, she opened conversations of the lack of representation of Afro-Latinos and intersectionality in a community that often shies away from these topics. Brenda's mix of identities was often met with, you are not enough, not Latina enough, not black enough, not American enough, Brenda has strived to create a seat at the table while avoiding tokenization. The former University of Missouri student body vice president reflects on stepping up, speaking out, and the power of using a young voice to make a difference. She shares lessons learned from student-led protests ignited by systematic racism that capture national headlines. So first of all, wow. <laughs> Thank you for, for all of the work you've done. Uh, when we met through Belleza Latina, one of the things that stood out the most was obviously the audition that you did where you shared that part and that side of the work that you have done. And it was not all glamour and, and glitter and beauty. And I really appreciated that to see someone fighting for Latinos and Afro-Latinos. And yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. So I wanted to start before we go into the questions, if we can all put in the chat, what are some things that you have been told or you have heard about colorism, whether it is fair skin or darker skin in your Latino households? Interesting point, because when we talk about colorism, I think it's so directly tied to um, Eurocentric beauty standards that it's not just about the tone of your skin, right? Everything from your eye color to the shape of your nose. That's one that lately I've been getting a lot is, um, for those of you guys who don't know who I am, um, I also have a really interesting passion for uh, pageants. So um, right now I'm competing for Miss Universe Mexico. And if I were to win, I would become the first black woman of acknowledged African descent to compete um, representing Mexico in Miss Universe. And the type of backlash that I faced has been a lot different than I expected. 
because I didn't expect for people to be so bold. I feel like in the United States, it's something that's a lot more masked. Whereas in Mexico, people will come up right to your face and tell you, you're not white. You should not be representing Mexico. And um, a big thing that has been kind of all over social media lately is how I need to get a nose job and how my nose is too big. And, And that kind of reminded me of what you were talking about with the eyes, because we think about colorism and, and we think about it as something as easy as, okay, your, your shade of, of skin, but there's so much that's intrinsically tied into that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and in my research, I found um, a story of a Brazilian model who in Brazil, they have these carnivals every year and they're huge on beauty pageants as well. And she talked about how she was darker skin than most of the winners, but the people, even the same people in Brazil ended up dethroning her because she was too dark. The, the black people in Brazil just they didn't feel like she was fit enough. So they actually took away her title and gave it to another woman who was a little bit lighter than her. But this pageant was to recognize women of African descent, but the dark girl, like it, it was too, too, she was too dark for them. So if you guys want to look her up, her name is Nayara Justino and it was for the Globalista Carnival. So that was just crazy. And just listening to you. And even when I see the contestants in Mexico, you stand out so much, you know, because everybody looks so similar. Hmm. That's one of the privileges that I'm most aware of. You know, and I feel like one of the things that as minorities or as people who belong to minority, marginalized groups or communities, I think that sometimes it can be difficult for people to check their own privileges because they constantly or we constantly think about how we've been oppressed in our life and how we've been um, blocked from achieving our goals or our our dreams and and the mistreatment that we've faced, that it, it can blind us to the privileges that we have over others. But especially over the last five to six years, colorism and and specifically my privilege as a lighter skinned black woman and my privilege as a biracial black woman is something that I try to be so aware of. And I also acknowledge that, for example, when we met on NBL, that was a show that for over 10 years or for 10 years, I think it was in the 10th season that we participated, um, had never had a black woman make it in as a finalist, make it into the top 10 and live in the house and participate in the, in the show. I was the first, but I also recognized that a lot of that had to do with the color of my skin, the way I looked, the way that I wore my hair and the way that I spoke. Because at the end of the day, I think that I was viewed as the quote unquote most palatable option. And that I think is something that we need to keep really, really at the forefront of our minds when we have these conversations. Yeah. For sure. And I feel like it's, it's not only on that show, it's like across the board with, especially Hispanic media. And that's one of the things I was really disappointed coming from a media background, working in Hispanic TV. I was so disappointed to see how no one spoke up about what was going on. None of the talent, even on TV, the news, they were not really saying what was the truth. And even one of their biggest talents, they spoke about the protests and the looting before they spoke about what really went down and why this was going on. So 
for sure on that. I want to read just a little bit of the stuff that you guys shared. So Tania shared, pelo malo, mejorar la raza, always referring to the white family members as más bonito. What do you have to say about that? <laughs> oh my gosh, pelo malo, that is, I actually have a shirt uh, that says, um, no tengo pelo malo, because that's one of the things that I've heard my whole life. But specifically, I, I feel like I haven't talked about NBL in so long, but talking about this just brings so many of those things up because that whole experience was marred in blatant racism in my experience. And um, that was one of the things that I was told. Before NBL, I had spent about two years um, strengthening my hair and making sure that it was healthy and not doing any type of chemicals to it or, or making sure that it was um, that I was able to wear it natural. I wore it curly every single day. And on that show, I was told, tú no puedes usar ese pelo porque es pelo malo. And I told them, well, you know, you can, you can still do something to it. You can still fix it up and todavía lo puedes peinar. You know, it doesn't mean that I just have to wear my hair with just water, but the producer was absolutely against it and refused to let me wear my hair like that on national television. Wow. And that's not the first time I actually studied journalism um, in college. And I remember the first time I went and had to tour uh, the newsroom, we were told that that type of hair, like I remember that uh, one of the producers specifically pointing out a girl in our group and saying that type of hair is not acceptable in this newsroom. So I think that those comments, yeah, it's just hair. But it's so much bigger than that because where where is the root of that issue, right? Where is the root of that way of thinking? Yeah, where does that come from? Gloria says, todos son malos y vagos. Mm-hmm. I've heard that before yeah. too. Lucila, I was always told, no estés en el sol mucho tiempo, te vas a poner prieta, o que hueras las niñas de Priscila, que bellas. Mm-hmm. Yes. Didi says, stay out of the sun. Yes, the word prieta is... Yeah, for sure, in, in in our family as well. I I was called Greta going up so much that I started avoiding the sun. Wow, Priscila, you're not the only one. I did the same thing. Veronica says I have experience when people of other races don't know I am Hispanic and say racist things about Hispanic. Mm-hmm. Jessica says I realized it after I had kids. We are very fair skinned with dark hair, and they point out that and point that out when they call me bonitos. Yeah. And Veronica, or people say things around me in Spanish thinking I don't understand. Has that ever happened to you? All the time, all the time. It's funny because my dad actually, um, he worked as a, he worked in border, uh, what was it? Like immigration, like basically at the airport where um, you're coming through and customs and everything. And he would always talk about how Latinos would always mouth off to him and, and call him all kinds of names. And he would just sit there quietly until eventually he would start speaking to them in Spanish. And they would just be in such shock, almost as though they were so unaware that Black people exist in Latin America. And I think that that's a lot more, you know, recognizing Black people in in, uh, Latin America is a lot more common in places like the Caribbean. But um, for example, when Blackout Tuesday happened, I had such an interesting experience because so many people who are activists for Latino representation in the media, specifically in the United States, and also who are activists for indigenous groups in Mexico, people who I would consider involved in the social justice world, 
were writing me because they genuinely had no idea that black people existed in Mexico. So it's just, it's, it's interesting how our, um, how our education is specifically omitting us time and time again. And that's not just something that happens in the United States, but around the world. And one of the things that I want to talk about, since you mentioned about you competing in Mexico and living in Mexico, and when we talked on the phone, we kind of touched on what you're, you've experienced just walking in the street in Mexico. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. How Mexico is, it's very interesting. My dad used to always tell me, um, how he would always get stared at and people would come up and like touch his hair and things like that. And I thought, Oh, well, that was a different time. You know, my dad's about, he's old, he's like 72, something like that. So I figured, well, you know, times have changed. And once I moved there as an adult and I was more free to travel around the city by myself, I started realizing the types of looks and the types of, um, just kind of gawking that I would get. And it went above and beyond the typical, you know, catcalling that unfortunately we still have to deal with. And it wasn't until my friends started coming down to visit. And most of my friends who are, you know, my close group of friends are black and they would come around and want to go sightseeing. And everywhere we went, we would get stopped for photographs everywhere we went. And it wasn't something uh, like people just sitting down and talking to us and saying, oh, you're really cool. Let's, let's take a picture together. No, it was people would genuinely stop us, physically stop us and put cameras in our faces and start taking pictures. Or what happened also is that we would have groups of people come up and they would have one person stand and take the picture and everybody would stand in front of us and use us as a prop. And it's something that's so bizarre. I think until you live something like that, you just don't even think that it's real because you see it happen to celebrities and things like that. But when people are literally coming up and touching you and touching your hair and stopping you, impeding you from going about your day, it is really jarring. Wow. That's crazy. Just like about going through that. And like, you know, sometimes we think about even just how like we don't understand the privilege right because we don't ever go through something like that so we don't really understand what that is like Mm -hmm. I also want you to help us explain what is the difference between colorism and racism I think that's a really important one especially in the Latino community because racism is discrimination based on race and colorism is a specific discrimination uh, based on the tone of your skin. And especially now, a lot of people are starting to include Eurocentric beauty standards in that definition as well. Um, I think that even earlier, um, talking about Puerto Ricans and and Dominicans and especially all of these Caribbean um, groups where, you know, things are a lot more mixed in. Everybody may have a lot more, um, you know, there's a lot more of a possibility of people having uh, African blood or African heritage, but not exactly recognizing it. And that's one of the things that we hear so much, right? Is, oh, I'm not black. I'm Dominican. I'm Mm. not black. I'm Puerto Rican. I'm not black. I'm this. And I think that that's hard for us because as Latinos, we've been taught that Latinos are a race or where we've kind of been brought up to think that when in reality, you can be Hispanic and be white. You can be Latino and be black. You can be Latino and be, I don't know, um, Asian of Asian descent. And I think that that's really hard for people to grasp 
the fact that they're not mutually exclusive. I think that the more that we talk about the importance of intersectionality, the more that we'll be able to have these conversations at an intersection and not at a parallel. I love that. So when I first met my husband, mm-hmm. he asked me, hey, do your parents know I'm black? Mm-hmm. Oh, I hate that conversation. <laughs> uh, he's like, it's okay because I'm half Puerto Rican. So tell them I'm Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. And like, to him, it was funny. And I think for me, for us, like that was a funny conversation when we had it. But when you really get deep into understanding why he said that, Mm-hmm. And, and when you think about what my mom said when I told her that my boyfriend was black mm-hmm. and why the black parents have to have these conversations with their black sons. Mm-hmm. My parents were in an interracial relationship in what, like the nineties. So I know that for them, it couldn't have been easy. And my mom talks about it all the time. And she says that my grandparents were really open and really accepting But then when I talk about my dad and I have the same exact conversations with my dad, my dad tells me it wasn't easy. It was hard. It was difficult going down to Mexico and feeling like you were being poked and prodded at and and feeling like um, you were almost like a prop to people. And it's just interesting to me that they can have two incredibly different perspectives on the situation, even though they were in the same relationship, they were going through it at the same time. And to this day, I don't even think I've ever had that conversation with my mom. But I think that if they were to have that conversation again today, their outlook might be a lot different. So when was the first time that you felt like you experienced colorism? Like thinking back to when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. When colorism first- specifically. Mm, well, let's start with racism. racism. Um, so I grew up between Southeast Georgia, a small town in Southeast Georgia, and Mexico City. Um, my whole life, I was going back and forth. I didn't have family here. So for me, I was always having to stay at people's houses and um, staying with people who we didn't really know that well because my parents worked and that's just, it was what it was. Um, and I just remember so often people kind of excusing or qualifying my blackness, I guess, with the way I spoke and with the way I carried myself and, oh, well, she's black, but she's not black, black. It's fine. You know, or or you can hang out with her, but you can't hang out with other people. Like that to me is something that was so vividly ingrained in my mind is how many times parents would say to their kids, specifically to their white daughters, that they were not allowed to have black friends. It's almost like out of a movie, but I witnessed it so many times. And then the older we got, I remember around high school time, I was um, going to a sleepover with uh, a girl that I cheered with and she told me, oh, well, you know, I'm I'm gonna go out for a little bit, I'll be right back. It was my first time hanging out at her house. I, I didn't really know her that well. And then I realized that what she had me there for was to cover for her to sneak out and go see her black boyfriend because she wasn't allowed to date black men. And, um, so that's kind of, you know, always been something that I've grown up. I don't remember learning it. I don't remember having an experience one day and saying, Oh my gosh, race is a thing. And this is a problem in my life. It's just was always, it was just really normalized. And I think that that's something that I feel really badly about now is that at the moment, I just kind of accepted it as, well, this is just the way things are. I think that it's fine. Um, I I always knew that I was uncomfortable with it, but I didn't realize 
how wrong it was until I got older. And you kind of touched on it a little bit, but I heard somewhere like being the token black friend. Oh, yeah. Oh, I feel like I'm always the token black friend. Um, I'll tell you guys an interesting story. So in college, I actually decided that I was done being the token black friend. And I don't know what I was thinking with my mentality because looking back, it made no sense. But I was so tired of being in the black this or the Latino that. Like I didn't want to be in the black honor society. I didn't want to be in the Latino student government. I just wanted to be a part of the mainstream. So when I went to college at the University of Missouri, I decided I don't have any friends here. I'll join a sorority. Mind you, at these big SEC schools, what they do is they make you come in a week before school starts and you have to do sorority recruitment. So you basically are picking the outcome of your social life for the next four years before you even have a chance to have a taste of what campus is like. I ended up um, getting into you know, a top sorority, which people were really shocked about. And from that day forward, I became known as the Black Tridel. And that was, oh my goodness, I did not realize how annoying that would be until um, I remember one time, Um, I was also really heavily involved in student government and someone sat down with me and said, you know, you're going to be vice president of the school one day. And at my school, that was a pretty major thing. Vice president managed about $2 million in funds and, and had a lot of pull. Um, So people really fought over these positions. And, and this was during a Senate meeting. I had a a student Senator come up to me and tell me, you're going to be vice president of the school someday, not because you deserve it, but because everybody would love an attractive black tridel to pull in the white crowd. And so it's just, you know, you think about These are the things that people are willing to say publicly when you're on record. What are the things that go on behind the scenes? So I kind of wanted to ask you, were there any differences when you visited Mexico versus when you visited Panama? Well, I'll be honest. I didn't spend a lot of time in Panama. I right before NBL, I went for the second time ever. And before then I had only gone when I was a baby. I don't even have memory of it. So although I did meet my Panamanian family, um, most of them are now in the U S now. It it was so different because I remember I was actually having this conversation with my mom earlier. I met my dad's family when I was about 13 years old, we had a family reunion and I went there. And even though all my friends at home primarily were black, I didn't really have the experience of growing up in a black family. So I get there and I remember looking at my mom and telling her, you know, my family is black, black. Like what? I did not expect this. Like this is not what I thought it was going to be like. And ever since then, my perspective shifted so much because I realized that I was even internalizing all of those ideas of what African, what American blackness means versus what Latino blackness means, right? And how I thought that they would have to be worlds apart. Um, That was the first time I realized that I was perpetuating those same stereotypes in the Latino community. Wow. Mm -hmm. One of the very interesting things that you told me was how in Mexico, they didn't even have a category for, or like a spot for Africanos, like uh, Mexicanos de... To check on the census, have you seen any change? Absolutely, absolutely. So that started in about 2015. Mm -hmm. That's how recent it was. So 
I remember going into the census. We just had the census this year and going into it and feeling so excited to be able to identify as black because people either had to put other or sometimes they would put indigenous. But the problem with that is that we all know that those census um, results are tied directly to representation and they're tied directly to um, our local economies. So what that told me is not only are we not represented, but we are literally just erased from the political sphere. Um, Over the past five years, I will tell you that I've seen a huge push from the government to recognize Afro-Mexicans. I've even seen um, events organized by the national government um, to bring out Afro-Mexican communities. Um, There's now a show, if you guys are interested, um, Canal Once, I think it's on Tuesday nights. They have a show specifically talking about Afro-Mexican history, and that's really cool. Um, I tend not to catch it that often because I don't have TV at my house, (laughs) but I try to watch it when I can. And I love that even though it is kind of like this niche market as of right now, it's becoming more and more accessible. However, I wish that it didn't have to be relegated to Black people talking about Black people problems. I'm at a point in my life and in my career where I'm done preaching to the choir. I did that. I did that for a lot of years. And it can be, it can feel powerful because you're constantly feeling supported. Um, But at the same time, it it feels so unintentional. And that's why when I decided to um, jump into speaking full time, I wanted to make sure that I was reaching communities that normally wouldn't have those types of conversations. So now I really prioritize going to schools that are a little bit more rural, that are a little bit more, um, I speak primarily at universities, but schools that normally would not have access to these conversations. We have some questions from Didi. What are some blind spots for non-Black Latinx women? I definitely know that my proximity to whiteness means something and I'm working on changing the lens in which I see things. How can us women show up better for each other? I love that. First of all, that's amazing. I think that's a massive first step because so many of us don't realize that we're doing that. Um, And that's something that I've been working on over the past couple of years is making sure that I'm recognizing my privilege and how I can use that to to better serve those around me. when you when I read that, the first thing that kind of popped into my mind was the conversation that we had about um, Latinas, what was it, like Latinas for Black Lives or Latinas for Black Lives Matter. That's something that I've been seeing so much. And I'll, I'll share with you guys a little story that I, I shared with Sonia. Um, there's a Mexican actress who's very well known. She's, you know, one of the larger influencers who's doing major campaigns, both in the United States and in Mexico. And like, you can't walk around the city without seeing her face on some kind of a billboard. Um, And she posted Latinas for Black Lives. And I commented on her Instagram post and I said, you know, this is great sentiment, but please also recognize that Latinos also include Black Lives. So could we talk about that when we're having these conversations? Because right now I feel like we're so quick to send um, thoughts and prayers to the United States but we are not willing to challenge our own beliefs and our own concepts of race within our own communities. So what does that mean, right? What does that mean when we are, it almost reminds me of the US, like being willing to to call out all of the human rights violations all over the world, but yet um, in this country, it's almost like they can go unseen and unheard. So just the way that we talk about it and the language that we use is so important um, because 
that to me says that we're having this conversation once again, as though it's a parallel experience when it absolutely isn't. So what would you say for people raising children and for, for just helping for the future generations that we can do in order to help eradicate that? Mm. For people raising children. Oh, I think, um, one of the more important things is to not go to the other extreme because what I see now with uh, people who are friends of mine or contemporaries of mine who are having kids is that they want to raise them in this colorblind way and, you know, teach them not to see color. That's one of the phrases that I always heard growing up. I'm not racist. I don't see color. Right. And I think that it's so important for us to recognize how beautiful our differences are and to recognize our privileges, to not be embarrassed of them, Um, and to be able to be intentional about what we do with them, right? I know it's a huge privilege that I had the opportunity to go to college and study Black studies. I've seen so many people lately, um, especially over the past couple of weeks, talk about, I didn't even know Black Wall Street existed. I didn't even know what Juneteenth was. You know, things that I may think, oh, well, nobody wants to hear that. That's, you know, so basic. But I have to keep reminding myself that it's a privilege that I even had the opportunity to go to an expensive school and get like a $200,000 degree and have that education now to share with my community. So, I mean, I always say, give yourself grace, number one, um, but always challenge yourself. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a difference between saying morenos and negros? I was raised to say morenos and that negros was offensive. Absolutely. There's a massive difference. Um, I personally, when I refer to myself, um, I don't know. I don't actually, now that I think about it, I don't think I ever called myself morena or negra. Actually, negra. Yeah. Because I think that morena is more like, we have to remember that a lot of people consider that just kind of like the darker, like olive toned skin and um, dark hair when, okay, this is a perfect example. It almost reminds me of saying people of color versus saying black. Now, are negras morenas? Yes. But are all morenos negros? No. So I think it really depends on the situation and what exactly it is that you're trying to say. Because if you're talking about black issues, then it's more appropriate to use negros. But if you're talking about you know the description of a girl walking down the street or, or I don't know, whatever, if you're just trying to describe a, a human being, then I feel like it's a little bit more easy to be interchangeable. But we cannot water down that word. Um, I think for me, that was something that I was not taught, but I feel like it it just is something that I learned because I saw that people would say, are you like, you know, they they didn't want to say, (laughs) you know, like, you know, they give you like that awkward thing. And I feel like it, it almost used to be like that too, when people would talk about blackness. I don't identify as African-American. Now, are all African-Americans Black? Yes. But are all Black people African-Americans? No. Um, So I think that it just comes down to specificity. Mm, I like that. I I like that. And I'm glad that she asked that because even when writing down captions for like these posts, Mm -hmm. Black? Should I say PLC? Like, ugh, is are are people gonna get offended? Because it's so easy to like. You're on a fine line right now. Like, you can either go one way or the other. Mm-hmm. But I also heard somewhere else like 
black. Like we're black. Like just say it. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's kind of what I subscribe to as well. And honestly, it took me going to college. I look back at my college um, applications and, and the essays that I had to write. And I would always talk about African-American, but going to college, I realized I don't really identify with the African-American experience. I don't really identify with that culturally. So why am I boxing myself in just because it's like the PC term? Um, now I think it's, it's become a lot, it's almost become backwards where people are like, I am black, say that I'm black. Don't try to water it down, you know? Yeah. So Didi says, how do you identify when people ask you, what are you? Um, honestly, usually I'll just smart off and say, oh, I'm Bren. Nice to meet you. Because I hate that question, not because I have a problem with people asking, but because I, I really question what it is that you want to know. Um, if I'm in the United States, I know that they're probably asking like, what's my ethnicity? If I'm in Mexico, they're usually asking my nationality. If I am, you know, it's, it's so situational, but I am also someone who's so open to questions. Like I, I don't, I don't get offended. I might not like something, but I definitely don't get offended. Um, I'll just talk to the person because sometimes it'd be like, wait, are you Mexican or are you black? And I'm like, well, did you know you could be both? <laughs> so usually I just give a little rundown. And I'll, I'll tell them, you know, my mom is from Mexico. My dad's from Panama. Um, I'm biracial. I grew up between Mexico City and Southeast Georgia. And now I live in Mexico and I have a dual citizen to Mexico and the United States. Thank you so much, Brenda, for, for being here, for taking the time to talk with us. And I really appreciate everything that you've said. It's just has really helped us a lot. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on. Honestly, I think that these conversations are so important. I think that um, even giving an hour of your time to, to listen to me talk and to ask questions is so important. I actually shared um, on my... Instagram. Yeah. On my Instagram feed, I shared a list of resources specifically about Afro-Mexican communities and Afro-Mexican history. If you guys are interested, those are probably like the most, it's probably like the most curated selection that I found thus far. Um, I think it's really important for us to have these conversations in relation to the United States, but also to keep bringing it back to our countries of descent, because I think that that's where these conversations are needed so much right now. As someone who was born and partially raised in the United States, I try to be very careful not to impose my more quote unquote liberal mentality or to not impose um, my thought process on Latinos who were born and raised in, in their home countries or in uh, Latin American countries. However, I think that we have such an opportunity to bring back these conversations to people who may be more willing to listen to us than they would be to listen to the news. Everything that you've said is just has really helped us a lot. Oh. I know that this is time for change, and I know that's why we're all here. So I just want to appreciate all of you guys right now. Mujeron, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Mujeron podcast. Please make sure you subscribe, share, leave a review so you can help us get to so many more Mujerones. Don't forget, you can also watch our show on our YouTube channel where you can let us know in the comments if you like this episode or what other topics you would like us to talk about in the future. Keep shining, keep working towards becoming the Mujeron of your dreams.